Welcome to this week's Coronacast. It's the eighth in our series. Let me kick off by asking you a question. When the clocks turned on the 1st of January this year, did you consider that the freedoms our forebears had worked so hard to win, including through the two last world wars, would be lost in a matter of a few months? This weekend, we've seen the political activist, Piers Corbyn, the brother of former UK Labour Party leader, Jeremy, who organised an anti-lockdown rally, being fined £10,000 and being kept in jail for about 10 hours, when the right to peaceful assembly is being curtailed by emergency, broad-ranging and unspecified powers granted to governments without any agreement of the electorate, you know that something has happened to our fundamental rights, the very rights on which civilised societies are based. The most disturbing thing about the last few months hasn't been the arrival of the new and somewhat peculiar viral pathogen that for the vast majority of people causes few if any symptoms. Instead, it's been the human response to it. That's not meant to belittle the fact that around 5% of those who are infected by the virus suffer serious respiratory disease that appears to be on par with flu or pneumonia, all of which can be fatal for those who are least able to mount an appropriate immune response. If your health function is good, which is the case of the majority of people, we think a much bigger threat to you, to all of us, is the gamut of human and particularly government-mandated responses to the virus. The central impact of these actions is on businesses, on livelihoods, and on economies. And it's, of course, the businesses and economies that provide the livelihoods that allow societies to function for people to maintain health. What we've got to take on board in considering all the options is the very tight and well-proven correlation between socioeconomic status and health. To us, when you recognize the fundamental importance of these social and economic determinants of health, it's remarkable that so many have just gone along with it all, buying into the narrative handed to them by the mainstream media and governments. Perhaps that's beginning to change with the number of protests that are going on around the world. What's just as interesting is how the media are either downplaying these protests or pretending they're only fringe events that are being run and supported by wackos. So many have simply just taken on board the idea that without a vaccine, the only option available to us are national lockdowns, furlough schemes and school closures. It's as if so many of us just can't see or don't want to look at the car crash that will inevitably be felt on health and everything else, the full extent of which we'll probably only come to appreciate in the years ahead. There's no doubt as we move towards the possibility of further local lockdowns and knee-jerk reactions to rising R numbers and the absence of any hospitals being overrun with COVID patients, that the protests could create a deep and dangerous divide in societies. But it isn't too late. It's never too late. So let's now look at the nine things we believe governments should do now to avert mass social upheaval, which could have disastrous health, social and economic consequences. The first thing that we have to make sure happens is that governments must stop making people feel scared. Governments, health authorities and the media should stop engendering fear of the virus and help people to understand its impacts 
in the context of other respiratory diseases. That means they've got to report on deaths caused by COVID accurately and put them in the context of other diseases and causes of death, not consider them in isolation. They also need to be clear about communicating evidence of any reducing virulence of the virus, something that's thought to happen with all new viruses that are adapting to their new hosts. Secondly, we need to see the democratic process restored, the exercising of authoritarian or even totalitarian powers based on weak or absent scientific evidence that destroys businesses, livelihoods and ravages people's freedoms is a recipe for social upheaval and it could destroy the fabric of society. When the right to peaceful assembly means paying big fines and facing imprisonment, you know it's gone too far. It's time to get the democratic process back on track and show that governments, as the executive authority, exercises the will of the people who voted them in. Appropriate response right now is to get back to work, get back to school and be vigilant and be calm and reassured right now the risk to you is very low. Lack of normality is a terrible, terrible risk. Society, we, we've torn the fabric of society. We've got to see governments try their best to restore the normal function of society as far as possible. That's by encouraging healthy people to resume all normal activities. You only have to look at the data from countries like Sweden that engaged in a partial or light lockdown. They may have seen a little upturn in cases through increased testing, but critically, they now face no elevated hospitalizations. The overall impact of coronavirus, especially the collateral damage, has been so much lower because of the light lockdown. And it used an almost business-as-usual approach. It shows clearly that lockdowns and business closures serve no purpose in helping us to adapt to the new virus. It simply creates a rash of additional problems. The problem with this is that lockdown is disproportionately damaging to the weak part of society. Governments need now to abolish social distancing policies and other measures because they serve to do little more than delay the transmission among healthy people so that naturally acquired immunity is also delayed. All that does is increase the chances of a second wave. The level of evidence is very, very low. Uh, we know for fairly certain that mask does not protect you from getting in. Governments also need to abolish the mandatory use of masks and other face coverings in public settings and in schools, as there's no scientific basis for their use, something that we've shown in more detail in a separate video. We need to see government programs that prioritize the enhancement of people's natural immunity. That means supporting and encouraging healthy, immune-enhancing, anti-inflammatory diets, as well as the use of proven supplements such as vitamin C, vitamin D and zinc. At the moment, public health messaging in this area pays little more than lip service to these ideas. Certainly doesn't get near recommending the use of cheap, simple supplements like vitamin C, D or zinc. Most people already know their risks, but those that are, of course, at greatest risk are people with one or more comorbidities. That includes people with metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes and obesity, as well as those with heart disease or lung disease. Possibly most controversially of all, we argue that national antigen and antibody testing programs for the virus should now be shelved. 
as they're both inaccurate and incredibly wasteful of limited resources, ones that we, the taxpayer, will ultimately have to pay for. They also serve to maintain people's focus on just one disease pathogen that's really, in the scheme of things, a minor player compared with our overall risks in life. And they take the focus off the real problems, which are caused by government responses to the virus, as well as in a proportion of society, particularly those in the most deprived areas, a lack of immune resilience, making people not just susceptible to this one disease, but also a rash of other respiratory infections caused by viruses and bacteria. And of course, these health inequalities are just getting wider and wider as government-mandated actions continue to hit the most deprived hardest. And finally, while so much of the government and public health effort is looking at the promise of a vaccine, we are a long way from knowing if the new genetically engineered platform is being used for most COVID vaccines will be safe or deliver lasting immunity. Governments claim that the trials of the vaccines that are being developed now at warp speed is transparent, but the first results published in leading journals like the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet are far from transparent. Side effects and harms are also very real. Transparency also requires that the medical need for a vaccine is there, which means the real risk of infection, including considering, considering if the virulence is actually waning over time, must be, considered, must be considered alongside the risks of any harms caused by the vaccine itself. And we've just added one more thing. It's a tenth point. Um, and this last point is not for governments, it's for you. With a censorship of information that runs against the mainstream narrative, and with increasing activity from biased fact-checking websites and organisations, there's never been a more, more, a more important time to share information that you believe accurately reflects the current state of play. So we ask you to please share this video with your MP or other elected representatives, as well as with your friends, family, colleagues, and others in your network. So let's adapt and not fight. Please consider subscribing as well to our YouTube channel that's got a wealth of information and playlists that will help to empower you. you also find loads of information that help you to support your choice to manage your health, first and foremost, by natural means, working with nature rather than against it. See you next time.